0: This is an ABC podcast. This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. And uh, hands up, who'd like to hear a story? Everyone, right? Everyone loves a story. And we have one coming up. But a word of warning, our story for today is a Buddhist story. And these have a way of confounding narrative expectations.
1: We do not have anything like character development. We very rarely have crises of conscience or moments of choice and regret and agonies and and all that rich emotional stuff. The imperfect people do indeed make bad choices and they feel sort of the common emotions, whether it's envy or um, desire for retribution or whatever it might be. But we don't follow characters through any kind of trajectory of moral development, and we aren't invited to enter into uh, their own agonies of uh, moral maturation.
0: Our storyteller is Amber Carpenter. She teaches at Yale NUS College in Singapore, and she works primarily in ancient Greek philosophy and classical Indian Buddhist philosophy, two very different traditions. Amber Carpenter was in Melbourne recently giving a keynote address at the Australasian Association of Buddhist Studies Conference at Deakin University. The title of the address was Ethical Ambitions and Their Formation of Character in Plato and Buddhist Thought. And it struck me that, at a glance at least, Platonic and Buddhist philosophy don't seem to have a whole lot in common.
1: In two really conspicuous ways, Plato shouldn't have anything in common with uh, the Buddhist outlook. One of them is this talk of uh, the soul, talking in terms of soul. Of course, the Buddhists famously deny that there's a self, although, of course, it's a, a long discussion about what exactly that means. And there are different views even within Buddhism. The second really conspicuous difference is that Plato thinks reality is intelligible. He thinks intelligible reality is unchanging. Buddhists think... Everything is transient, there is no unchanging reality, and correspondingly, um, our hope that there's some kind of fundamental intelligibility or good order to the universe um, is a misguided one, we'd do better to give it up. So there are these really profound differences actually between the platonic outlook and the Buddhist outlook. Where I see the similarity is in this prior commitment to turning towards reality, as our fundamental ethical task from which everything else follows. Right feelings, right actions, all the rest of it will follow along only when we are aiming to understand reality aright. So that's one way in which I think they are really singing from the same hymn sheet. And a further step of specification in their similarity is that they both think that the reality we turn to that we need to try to understand as it is, is an impersonal one. It's one that doesn't come ready-fitted with the categories of personhood, whether that's action and agency or choice or deliberation. And so
0: with the first of those similarities, you're saying that there's a presumption shared there uh, in Plato and in Buddhism that to correctly grasp reality is is a moral imperative, uh, perhaps first and foremost.
1: Yes, Yes, that it's a moral imperative, that that's our task, and that undertaking that task will transform us, will shape our character and improve our character.
0: Character is an interesting term to bring into this. and We certainly find this in um, Aristotelian ethics, don't we, this idea that I am the one who bears certain traits and certain responsibilities. But in Buddhism, as you say, there's no self. So, who is it that can be said to strive for this clearer perception of reality, and and what is the Buddhist conception, or what, what is a Buddhist conception of character that we can work with here?
1: It's true a, a Buddhist conception of character will have to be something like a bundle of traits that are highly interconnected and mutually dependent on each other and mutually informative of each other. Um, then it's not a substratum theory. Uh, interestingly. It's not clear that Plato doesn't think maybe something the same of the self, that we have this sort of sack or we are this sack of competing desires and impressions and capacities and so on. um, And that they are all interconnected and mutually uh, sort of playing off each other and forming each other. And how they do that and whether they do that, the kind of unity or disunity that they create or that they co-create uh, can be named our character. And this is very different from an Aristotelian-style conception of character where you've got a substratum and it's a trait-bearer, it bears certain traits, these are dispositions or virtues or something like that. But I don't think that it's incoherent to talk of character. I think there's a perfectly coherent way to speak of character, but you do have to understand it differently from the Aristotelian substratum way. So although Aristotle does indeed enumerate and explore a number of different virtues according to the different modes or dimensions of feeling and action that we have, he lays a particular emphasis on what is up to us, the voluntary, And what is up to us is that which is uh, worthy of praise and blame. This is what distinguishes the moral realm from other things. And this move gives a kind of priority to deliberation and choice, of which Aristotle has quite specific kinds of discussions. I think that in Platonic ethics and in Buddhist ethics both, uh, you don't have this priority given to choice and deliberation as demarcating the special moral realm distinct from some other uh, sort of realm. Of course there's action and choice and of course it matters uh, what sorts of deliberations and thoughts uh, we engage in, but the Buddhists and Plato both are very highly aware that these deliberations and these choices are always, always formed by uh, and taking place within a context of Perceptions and recollections, and all kinds of other prior commitments that are standing ready at the artificially isolated moment of choice.
0: That's really interesting. So, in terms of um, moral salience, if you like, then this kind of transformation, this turning of the soul towards reality, it takes choice, well, not out of the equation, but the really interesting stuff. You're saying it, it, that all happens before we get to the exercise of choice.
1: Precisely. Precisely. Choice is what happens in virtue of the impressions, memories, desires, categories we have for thinking in particular, our ways of connecting thoughts. All of these are what go into making a choice arise as it does or go a certain way. So one consequence of this recognition that the Buddhists and Plato both share of the uh, way that decision points always happen further downstream from the impressions, recollections, categories of thought that we're using, beliefs that we've formed, uh, perspectives that we already hold, and things like this. Um, One of the consequences of recognizing this is that for both of them, and this is their deep similarity, for both of them, if you want to improve morally, what you really need to change is the categories in which you view reality the beliefs that you have about reality, the way that you understand the various experiences that you encounter. And so that's what it means to make something like perspective or outlook or orientation towards reality a moral matter and a moral discipline. So then the question is, how do you actually change these more fundamental basic outlooks and perspectives and categories that you reach for when you want to describe and understand the experiences that you have. Buddhism is a religion. It's not just a philosophy. And one part of it includes practices that are mind training practices that are deliberately designed to make you more mentally agile, more able to Disconnect from, dissociate from any kind of distracting or confused sort of impression that arises. They also have, culturally, in most Buddhist cultures, a very rich tradition of storytelling. There's tons of these stories. Uh, They're all over the place, whether it's Jataka tales or tales of the previous lives of the Buddha. These tales are told in all kinds of circumstances. They're told um, by monastics to lay people, by monastics to monastics, by lay people to lay people, and they're very widely spread. Um, and some of them are fun. They involve, you know, human and non-human lives, and so on. They convey an ethos, and one of the important things that you realize when you, you know, read these stories is that they invite you to look at the world the way the accomplished person sees the world. So these are the two sorts of practices that Buddhism has for orienting us, changing our perspective, giving us new categories, more correct categories in which to interpret, through which to interpret our experience, a better understanding of what reality is really like in light of which to uh, interpret our everyday experiences.
0: I'd like to talk more about stories just a little later in the conversation, but uh, first of all, I'd like to stay with this this idea of reality. Uh, in If we're talking about a turn towards a better comprehension of reality, I mean, we know that in Plato, there's a sort of a capital R reality or a capital T truth at work here. To what extent are we talking about a similar kind of thing in Buddhist practice? What
1: that reality is, is is very different, and that speaks to the very different sorts of practices that Plato is going to enjoin. But there's a lot of talk within Buddhist ethics or hortatory uh, literature of suchness, of thusness in, in certain parts of Buddhist discourse, of seeing things as they are. Now, I think it's important to understand this is not a reality separate from our experienced reality. Um, One interpretation of Plato is that his intelligible reality is quite separate from our sensible lived reality. Um, That's a matter for discussion. But one thing that's quite clear with um, the Buddhists is that it's not a matter of understanding a different reality. It's a matter of understanding the only reality there is as it in fact is. And what they in particular mean by that is that we have a tendency to interpret our experiences and the world around us in terms of our desires and how it meets or frustrates those desires. And all of that is a distortion because reality as it is isn't a thing either answering to or frustrating our desires. It just is itself. Um, Now how reality is is transient Dependent, without any kind of overall plan or overall controller in any particular person or in some uh, transcendent divine force. So the reality that we're meant to turn towards isn't a separate reality. It's seeing the only reality is that there is as it is.
0: On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and Amber Carpenter, who teaches philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore, but was recently in Australia speaking at the Australasian Association of Buddhist Studies Conference at Deakin University, and she dropped into our ABC Melbourne studio. You spoke about the way in which narrative can do that work of, or can really help to do that work of uh, learning to think and reason ethically. Do you see this as, in some way, an equivalent to Martha Nussbaum's point about literature, that, that it develops the moral imagination and fosters empathy? Is that—is that the same kind of thing, or are there differences there?
1: It's obviously in the same ballpark, but I think there are really profound differences. That engaging in narratives can shape how we see the world and our own world. You might think of as a more generic point, and and that's going to be shared. But Martha Nussbaum's view is very Aristotelian, uh, participates in a a certain ethical tradition, which favors what she often calls richness, um, complexity, favors the high specificity of particular persons and personality and all of their complex richness and and so on, that this is somehow the more fully realized human. And maybe this is the part of the sort of perfectionist tradition that Buddhism really is not participating in. The characters in Buddhist narratives, by contrast, are not complex. They're not meant to be complex. It wouldn't be better if they were complex. We do not have anything like character development. We very rarely have crises of conscience or moments of choice and regret and agonies and and all that rich emotional stuff. Obviously, in the Buddhist tales, the imperfect people do indeed make bad choices and they feel sort of the common emotions, whether it's envy or desire for retribution or... Whatever it might be. But we don't follow characters through any kind of trajectory of moral development, and we aren't invited to enter into uh, their own agonies of uh, moral maturation. We are shown how the same situation looks to the Buddha or the Buddha when he was a Bodhisattva, how it looks often to monks or the monastic community, which may not be the same, and how it looks to somebody who is really just a layperson, you know, that they aren't anywhere near perfection. And we're offered these different ways of seeing the same thing, and it's, I think it acts more as an invitation to see things differently from how we would ordinarily see them but it doesn't do that by engaging our emotions of sympathy or encouraging us to identify with anybody. This probably has partly to do with a very different attitude towards the emotions and what would be a good and healthy emotional life. Um, A good and healthy emotional life on the perfectionist account is going to be one full of passions, full of wholeheartedness, maybe full of lots of conflict because conflict is human and it's going to be lived to its fullest and everything's going to be expressed. And and none of these things on the Buddhist outlook are virtues or speak to a human life being a particularly good one. They take it for granted that we've got all kinds of passions pulling us in all kinds of directions. Um, They're more interested in how we can distill and improve and clarify our emotional lives uh, so that they are less suffering, less afflicted, and no longer um, sort of impelling us compulsively to cause suffering for ourselves and others. Can you give me
0: an example? I'm I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you give me an example of a story that works in this way?
1: Ah, yes. Um, So there's a nice story in the Dhammapada commentary, and let's start with Malika. Malika is a layperson, but she's a very accomplished and devout layperson, and she often has teachings from monastics and practices, uh, that sort of life and so on. So she has a husband, Bandula, and 32 sons. Her 32 sons are all married. One day when she is serving the monastic community their daily meal, she receives a note that her husband and 32 sons have been killed. And she takes that note and tucks it away and says nothing of it. Later on in the meal, a pot of ghee falls and is broken, and uh, one of the monks says to her, one should not take note of broken things when they break, everything is breakable and one shouldn't create a fuss about it. And uh, so Malika says, yes, indeed, one shouldn't create a fuss about when breakable things break. Indeed, I just heard that my husband and 32 sons were all killed, and <laughs> you know, I didn't raise a fuss about it. So that was her reaction. She is sufficiently accomplished that she sees already in the death of her husband and her 32 sons the transience of things that are transient. Now... If we move then further along in the narrative, she then has to give advice to her daughters-in-law, the widows of her sons. They're presumably not particularly practiced or accomplished in orienting themselves towards seeing things as they are. So it's notable that she doesn't say to them, well, you know, breakable things break. Get over it, daughters-in-law. Instead, what she says is, your husbands were innocent. They only suffered the consequences of some previous misdeeds, um, but they are blameless. Go home to your families and harbor no resentment against the king. The king is the one who killed the bull. Harbor no resentment against the king. So she offers them a perspective that's different from her own, but one which will bring them from whatever sort of less helpful way that they are naturally disposed to experience the murder of their husbands um, to a more helpful way, one that doesn't have resentment in it, one that um, accepts that this is somehow going to be in the order of things without forcing them to think ill of their husbands and so on. Um, so this is a, a way of improving their perspective uh, when they are not yet able to have the fully improved perspective that she herself has, and the narrative gives us both of these, and it marks these different audiences as sort of different, differently developed or advanced in their understanding of reality.
0: Is it the case then that with these insights around impermanence, say, that are impossible to convey in in, in abstract terms, that they can only be really conveyed successfully in a narrative context?
1: I think that you can explain it and you can say it and you can understand it in a certain respect. I can say all things change and I think I understand what that means. But can I really be experiencing my own emotions and the things that happen to me in life and other people and myself in a way that really appreciates that transience? Um, without having some sort of narrative help along the way. I think that's a lot harder, right? I think understanding some kind of, if you like, physical or metaphysical fact about mutability is all well and good, but really interpreting myself and my situation in those terms is at least going to be extremely difficult without seeing some of that interpretive work done in other particular cases.
0: So in your own reading habits, your own literary preferences, are, are these the kinds of stories that you like to read, that you like to hear? Or do you see them more as something to read and to think about for a particular purpose, but at the end of the day, if you just want a good story, you'll reach for for George Eliot or Jane Austen <laughs> or some more sort of traditional novelistic mm-hmm. <laughs> genre?
1: Mm-hmm. I think literature is very rich and and one of the things that I personally like in literature is when it's really well written at the level of the sentence and the paragraph. But I think I can say this much, it shapes us, what we read and how we read it. It's interesting, Jane Austen herself is really aware of this. In her own characters and her characters who read novels and who are then shaped in their own sort of sensibility by their consumption of novels. What we read, the kind of thing that it depicts and the way it depicts, it really does shape our outlook, whether it's these novels or whether it's these narrative tales. And so I guess in this way it comes back to a fundamental agreement with Martha Nussbaum, that it's a moral matter. It's a matter of moral formation, what we read and how we read. And this actually brings us back to Plato, right? He's infamous for banishing the poets and having a state censorship <laughs> and right. so on, right? Um, but really what he's recognizing is that how we engage with narratives shapes how we view the world and ourselves and what we see as our possibilities for action and for feeling and what we conceive of as projects and aspirations and so it can never be a neutral matter what we're reading and the kinds of values that it implicitly conveys.
0: So you brought us back to Plato, which is where we began, so maybe that's where we'll end. Amber <laughs> Carpenter, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on the program.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And Amber Carpenter is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore. She has an excellent website where you can read and download a number of her talks and publications, and we've put a link to that on our website, which is abc.net.au. rn There's a program menu, and that's where you'll find The Philosopher's Zone. You can also grab any of our programs, past and present, while you're there. And of course, if you become a subscriber to our podcast, then you never have to go looking for us again. We come to you. Thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time.